The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you for this morning, this opportunity and privilege that we have to gather together and to study your word. Father, we know that throughout hundreds of years and through many different prophets and apostles, you have taken much effort to reveal to us your truth. And it is important for us to learn and know your truth, and that is the highest form of worship, is to learn and study your word that we might apply it in our lives. And may the Holy Spirit make it clear to us this morning that we may apply these principles in our lives that we may pursue spiritual maturity and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our subject this morning is why the believer's prayers are not answered. Not just how to get them answered, because there are no formulas that anybody can use to make sure that God is going to answer your prayer in the affirmative. And that's unfortunately what many people are teaching today because they are into some kind of a manipulation scheme that, that man can really manipulate God to do his will. And they're trying to use prayer to, to manipulate God and to manipulate people and all sorts of problems like that. And those prayers just don't even get off the ground. I doubt they make it even to the ceiling. So the first reason that we have for why the believer's prayer is not heard is because of a lack of faith. First reason is lack of faith. Malfunction of the faith rest drill in prayer means that prayer does not get anywhere. In Mark 11:24, Jesus said, I say to you, all things for which you ask and pray, believe that you shall receive them, and you shall be given them. In Matthew 21:22, Jesus said, And all things you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. So the condition for effective prayer is believing. Now, this is a condition. When the believer down here has faith and he directs his prayer up to the throne of grace in heaven, what enables it to go forward is faith. Faith is the means. It is not the cause of God answering prayer. There's not a cause and effect. It's, like it, it's the same as in salvation. Ephesians 2.89 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now that is a dia plus the genitive in the, uh, in the Greek, which means through, which means means. Faith is the means by which we appropriate our salvation. It's not a cause. If it were a cause, then the Greek would say dia plus the accusative. You're not saved because of faith. You are saved through faith. The cause of our salvation is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. So faith is not a cause for God to hear our salvation. It is merely the means of, by which our, our prayers are energized and go to heaven. But what exactly is faith? People are very confused about the whole notion of faith. And this is especially seen in the whole Lordship Salvation controversy that is uh, taking over many of the seminaries today and many other uh, many pastors get into Lordship Salvation. And one of the reasons is they just people just can't understand why it is that some believers fail. They just have a problem, as I said last night, with the fact that after you're saved, you still have the same sin nature. You still have the same propensity to sin. 
You still have the same capacity to sin. You still have those same sinful habits that characterized your life prior to salvation. And these things do not miraculously go away. That's the process of sanctification. And the process of sanctification is the believer grows in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and he learns doctrine and he applies doctrine, then he controls his sin nature through his own self-discipline. And self-discipline is based on the doctrine that he learns and that self-discipline is a product of the fruit of the Spirit. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and self-discipline. And so the sin nature is controlled. It is never eradicated. Its power is lessened. At the cross, we are saved, and with the Holy Spirit, we have the power over our sin nature to limit its effectiveness in our lives. Now, when we talk about faith, faith in itself has no merit on its own. Faith is non-meritorious. Faith is a, uh, uh, the basis for all knowledge, ultimately. Even rationalism and empiricism ultimately resides upon faith. In rationalism, uh, we seek ultimate truth on the basis of reason, but the assumption underlying it is that is a faith assumption that we believe that, that our, our reason is valid to get us to truth. The same thing with empiricism. We believe that our senses tell us the truth. So faith is foundational to all systems of knowledge. But So faith in and of itself has no particular merit. All of its merit is derived from the object of faith. What is believed? Now in mysticism... The issue is faith in faith. And you'll often hear people say this and they'll talk about how, oh, I just believe. Well, just believe what? Just as long as you believe. Well, that's a faith in faith. And this is very common in some charismatic circles today. And it's popular in in Christian science and things like that. It's a mind control thing. And it's just a faith in faith. But faith in itself has no merit. Faith for the believer only has merit when the object is the Lord Jesus Christ. When our faith is directed towards the cross, it is not our faith that saves us. It is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that saves us. And faith is the means by which we appropriate that salvation. In prayer, faith is directed towards doctrine. It's directed towards promises in God's Word. And it is directed towards certain um, doctrinal conclusions that we derive from the principles in Scripture. And so, as our faith is directed towards either specific promises in God's Word or doctrine or doctrinal conclusions derived from, uh, from developing some sort of theological rationale based on those principles, then we can go to God in, uh, with a prayer that is based upon faith. When faith malfunctions, then the spiritual life collapses. Now, I understand that you have been instructed on the ten problem-solving devices. Now, prayer in and of itself is not a problem-solving device. The problem-solving devices are confession of sin, uh, which gives us the, uh, restores us to fellowship with God, uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit, uh, faith rest grill, uh, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation, uh, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, or sharing the happiness of God, and occupation with Christ. These are the problem-solving devices. And prayer is not one of them, but prayer is a means of using many of those problem-solving devices. Through prayer, we can apply the faith rest drill. Through prayer, we can apply grace orientation or doctrinal orientation. So prayer is just a means of using various problem-solving devices. 
So from this we see that the lack of faith is one reason that prayer fails. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans. Romans is the first letter in the New Testament following the book of Acts prior to 1 Corinthians. Romans chapter 14 verse 22. Romans chapter 14 verse 22. Now the context of Romans 14 is the discussion about doubtful things, the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, and whether or not to drink wine, and the issue of of what to do in these gray areas. But we see a principle that underlies all of this, given in verses 22 and 23. The Apostle Paul writes, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. So faith is a conviction of truth. And the point in this is that often when we're praying, somebody will come to you and they'll say, well, would you pray about this for me? And you'll often hear a believer say, well, I just, I will if I feel led to. And that's fine because the point is that when you pray, you have to have faith. You have to have faith and believe what you're praying for. And if you don't have that conviction, that sense of conviction, that you are indeed praying in faith, then your prayers are going to go no higher than the ceiling. So there must be a sense of conviction about whatever it is that you do that this is true in God's will. The verse goes on, Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So that has to do with, as we apply this principle to prayer, approving a prayer request, something that you're praying for. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. That's your underlying principle. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Is sin. Now, this is a very interesting point that the Apostle is making here because he's saying that there are certain areas that are gray areas. Drinking a glass of wine is not necessarily a sin in itself. But if it violates your conscience, then it is a sin. Why is that a sin? Be- even if, even if you're, just because your conscience has wrong values in it, if you violate that conscience, it's still a sin. Now, why is that? Because you're setting up a habit pattern in your own soul of violating your conscience, those norms and standards in your soul. So as you begin to, to violate those, those, uh, those norms and standards at a basic level, even if that thing may really be right and you think it's wrong, then when it comes to another area of life where there truly is something that is wrong, it's easier for you to rationalize and convince yourself that it's okay to do it. So the principle is, don't violate your conscience, because once you set the precedent for violating your conscience, even if the issue is not necessarily wrong, then it's easier for you to continue to to follow that precedent and to continue to to, uh, uh, compromise in areas where there are true absolutes. But as far as the principle of faith is concerned, when it comes to prayer, we should have an internal conviction that what we are praying for is indeed God's will and that we have faith. For the principle is clear that faith is the means by which our prayers are heard. In all things you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. This is an unconditional promise. Now, second reason prayers are not heard has to do with carnality. And we saw that last night and I don't feel like there's any need to um, go into that in any more detail this morning. That whenever the believer is out of fellowship and he is carnal, he is under the control of the sin nature. And as long as he is under the control of the sin nature... His prayers will not be heard. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now, as I said the other night, the word, what that means when it says, if I regard iniquity, the Hebrew word for regard there means to look at, to see, to examine. 
and it has to do with self-examination of what's going on in the soul, in the innermost recesses of the soul, and that's the heart, the innermost part of the mentality of the soul. If I regard or if I see iniquity in the mentality of my soul, the Lord will not hear me. Now, once we confess our sins, God wipes the slate clean and we should wipe the slate clean as well. And then we can move forward in our, in our Christian life. That's the whole point of uh, confession. Confession doesn't move you forward. It just gets you back to that point in your spiritual life and our walk by means of the Spirit where we can start going forward. The third reason that our prayers are not heard is the wrong application of a promise. A wrong application of a promise. When we, we have already said that the believer needs to have faith and we believe a promise, the faith rest drill is the process of mixing the promises of God with faith. But if we misunderstand a promise of God and try to apply it to ourselves and it should not be applied today, then we're not going to get anywhere in our prayer life. God gave promises to different people in the Scriptures. There are some promises that God gave to the nation Israel. There are some promises that God gave to specific individuals like Abraham or Moses or Isaiah or Daniel. There are other promises that God gave to specific people at a specific time. There are some of the things that, that Jesus said to his uh, twelve disciples were only for them and related to their future ministry as apostles, but they do not relate to every single believer in the church age. There are other promises that God gave that relate to every believer in the church age. So you have to discern who these promises are for. And there are a couple of examples, I think, that are very prevalent today that are wrong uses of promises. So I want to take some time and look at these, these promises. Turn with me in the Old Testament to 2 Chronicles 7.14. 2 Chronicles 7.14. 2 Chronicles comes at the end of the historical books. You have First and Second Kings. And then First and Second Chronicles, it's before uh, Psalms, before Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. Second Chronicles, seven fourteen. Now this whole chapter has to do with the dedication of the temple of Solomon's temple. If we look back at earlier in the chapter. So verse 4, we see the, the beginning of this tremendous ceremony they had to, to dedicate the temple. Then the king, that Solomon, and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen. Now think how much blood that was. Pointed that out earlier. What a, a tremendous, tremendous imagery going on here. And 120,000 sheep. The, the, the picture here, the training aid that God is using here to focus people's attention on the horror of sin and what must be done in order to deal with the problem of sin and in cleansing man from sin. Thus the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their posts and the Levites with the instruments of music to the Lord which King David had made for giving praise to the Lord. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Whenever he gave praise by their means while the priests on the other side blew trumpets and all Israel was standing... Then Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, and there he offered the burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to contain the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fat. So Solomon observed the feast. So he goes on describing the, the week-long feast that they had. And in verse 12, skip down to verse 12. 
Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. And we're just going to stop there. What is he referring to at this particular point? God, this language of verse 13 goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. When God warned the nation Israel through Moses that if you disobey me, I will begin to discipline the nation. And therein he describes the five cycles of discipline. And in those five cycles of discipline, he talks about how he will shut up the heavens so that there will not be rain and that there will be plagues. And this is all to get Israel's attention back to God. So the context of verse 13 is specifically related to to the... um, uh, divine discipline and the five cycles of discipline that God had for Israel. Now, the thing, the thing I want you to realize here is that in the Old Testament, God had one nation, Israel, that was His nation. And Israel is a unique nation of all nations. It is a covenant nation with God. God entered into a specific covenantal agreement with the nation Israel. No other nation in all of human history has that kind of specific relationship with God that Israel had. Israel was chosen to be God's missionary agent in the Old Testament. So they are a covenant nation. When Israel went out under the fifth cycle of discipline, God replaced Israel with client nations, Gentile client nations. And these client nations are distinguished because they are nations where where the gospel is preached, where missionaries go out, and where there is a protection of Jews. This is what distinguishes a client nation to God. But client nations, Gentile client nations, are only client nations. They are nations that God blesses specifically because of the, the uh, remnant of believers within that nation, because the gospel is being preached, because missionaries are being sent out, and because the Jews are being protected. But no Gentile client nation has the same status as Israel had in the Old Testament. Israel is God's chosen people. They are given a specific covenant relationship with God. And so the language that is taking place here is a reminder by God to Solomon of Israel's uh, covenant relationship and the discipline that will come if they violate that relationship. And God is still talking. He says, if I send pestilence among my people at the end of verse 13. Now, who does God refer to as my people? Is that believers in the church age? No, it's not. It's Old Testament Israelites, the Jews. And my people Israel, who are called by my name. Israel means prince of God in Hebrew. It's the name given to Jacob. They are called by my name, humble themselves and pray. And this goes directly back to Deuteronomy, this, this terminology, that if they humble themselves and pray, and you see this happen in the book of Judges in the cycle of discipline, and, uh, and then uh, their, their return to God and repentance and recovery over and over again that when they would, they would turn back to God and they would pray that God would then deliver them from the oppressor and would lift up the nation again. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now who is God talking about here? He is talking about Israel. He's not talking about Americans living in the United States in the 20th century. He's not talking about the British living under the British Empire in the 19th century. 
He's not talking about any Gentile client nation here. And the principle does not necessarily apply. It is a specific promise related to the whole context of the five cycles of discipline that are the covenant cursings attached to the Mosaic covenant which God made with His people Israel. It says, if we read on, verse 15, Now my eyes shall be opened and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. So the statement in verse 14 is specifically linked to what's taking place in terms of the dedication of the temple. There's a historical context here. It has nothing to do with Gentile nations at any other time in human history. And yet, if you go to many, many churches, you will see this, this um, uh, verse taken out of context and people will quote it and, and they'll apply it to this nation today and they'll say, if we just pray, if we just turn back to God, then, then we'll take this, this verse out of context and use the phrase, my people called by my name and apply that to Americans living in the 20th century. And that's a false application. I think there is a principle that as long as there is a remnant within, a, uh, within any society, any culture that is following these principles of pro- proclaiming the uh, gospel of grace and faith alone in Christ alone, they're sending out missionaries and they are protecting the Jews, then God is going to protect them. But that is not related to this specific promise. So when we have a wrong application, a misunderstanding of a promise, then we cannot expect our prayers to be answered because God is not going to cater to our misinterpretation of His Word. Another example that often happens with people is uh, when they try to claim uh, Proverbs as promises. And one of the most popular mistakes that's made on this is, has to do with the promise that if you raise up a child in, uh, if you raise up a child in the way it should go, then when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, you have to understand the difference between a proverb and a promise. A proverb is a wise saying. That's why it's called proverb. It's not promises. It's not the book of promises. It's the book of proverbs. A promise is a wise saying, which means that in 95% of the cases, this is how things are going to happen. But it does not obscure human volition. A promise is an unconditional statement by God that under these conditions, this will always happen. And there's a difference between promises and proverbs. So there will be situations where you can say, if I, uh, you can point out a child that he's raised up in a home. For example, one of the, one, one of the men that, that uh, uh, was very prominent at Dallas Seminary when I was there was a man named Dick Sumi. Dr. Sumi was the chaplain and and he had been in Houston for many years. In fact, he was uh, the pastor of Baraka Church in the uh, late 40s uh, before he went on to Moody uh, Memorial Church in Chicago and then to Dallas Seminary as, as chaplain there. And uh, he, re- he and his wife raised up their children in the way they should go. But they were, he had one son who was never a believer. To this day, that man is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So children have their own volition. And nine times out of ten, you train them up a certain way, then they'll come back to that when they're older. We all see evidences of that every now and then when we catch ourselves. You know, once you get up, I think, into your 40s, all of a sudden you say something or do something with your kids, and you go, that was my dad, or that was my mother, where did that come from? So you, that's part of that principle coming through. But these are not promises, so we have to be careful not to take a proverb as a promise, because when it doesn't work out, I see people become discouraged, or they become bitter towards God, and that's because they misunderstand the nature of Proverbs. 
Another verse that, that, is, that I think is, is, is uh, frequently misunderstood is in Matthew 18. So let's turn to Matthew 18. This is a, a prayer promise that is often taken out of context. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, 19, and 20. Matthew 18, 19, and 20. Matthew 18, 19 reads, Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Now that seems to imply that, that to really make your prayer effective, you need to believe it. But if you want to make sure that God's going to hear it and answer that effectively, then you get two people to agree on it. And you see more and more silly Christians who can't read their Bible saying, well, well, I want to make sure God hears my prayer, so I'm going to find somebody else and we're going to agree together on this prayer and then God's going to be forced to answer this prayer. And then there's an explanation in verse 20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. Well, now think about this a little bit. At the point of salvation, one of the 40 things that happens to you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is that you are indwelt by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit makes your body a temple for the indwelling of Jesus Christ as the Shekinah glory. And God the Father also takes His residence up in, in the believer. So the entire Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, indwell the believer. So when two or three are gathered, there are two or three indwellings that are taking place there for each believer. You don't have to get with two or three other believers for Christ to be in your midst. But what is this verse talking about? Let's look at the context. The context has to do with the problem of, of uh, dealing with a, uh, another believer who sins against you or sins and needs to be uh, dealt with and reproved. Back, back in verse 15. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. Now this is probably a personal affront of some time, something that... Uh, uh, in, in our litigious society, we would probably the, the world out there would take the person to uh, to court over. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in privately, and try to work it out on a one-on-one basis. If that fail, if, if that succeeds, it says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. No longer just a private matter between you and the other, other person. But now there's going to be witnesses to what goes on in that situation. And hopefully, with the presence of two or three others who can act as referees uh, in the midst, and umpires in the midst of this conflict, that everything will be worked out. But if not, verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as an unbeliever. That's what it means uh, as a Gentile and a tax gatherer, just... Just uh, treat him as if he's, he's not a believer, because maybe he's not. We, we, sometimes we just don't know. Truly I say to you, and here he's talking to the apostles, and this passage here is a, something that's applied to apostolic authority in other areas. So I think that part of this may be, this interpretation of this whole section may relate to apostolic authority. Whatever you shall bind on heaven, and that happens, you bind on, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the apostles bound and loosed on, in, on earth by giving the gospel. And when someone trusted Christ as their Savior, they would be bound in heaven. And if they rejected the gospel, then they would be, be loosed in heaven and they would not have eternal life. Uh, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth... Now, oh, wait a minute. Two of who? 
two of you agree. What were they agreeing about? Look back at verse 16. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the two of you that are two or three gathered together in verse 19 or 20 relate to the two or three witnesses in this confrontational situation just described. Don't run in there and just jerk verses 19 and 20 out of the context of the reproving action taking place here. So when Jesus is speaking to His apostles, these disciples who will be apostles, and He's dealing with their authority to resolve interpersonal conflicts, He says, if two of you as apostles, as the authoritative leaders in the, in the church age, if you agree on earth about anything, that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. So this is not directed, I do not believe, to all church age believers, but it's a specific uh, uh, passage directed to those who would have apostolic authority. And then he goes on, for where two or three are gathered together in my name. For what purpose? For the purpose of, of executing a, a, a judgment decision about a believer who's out of line. This has to do with this disciplinary type of situation. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. In other words, if you two or three get together, then the judgment that you are determining and that you're going to execute on this rebellious believer has my authority behind it. That's the thrust of this passage. This isn't a prayer promise. This is not a promise about special fellowship that if you just get two or three believers together, you're going to have additional power to convince God and manipulate God in your prayers. The context is the context of, of discipline and reproof for a believer who is in, in, in perpetual carnality and creating problems within the body. And I think it's specifically a, directed to the authority that the apostles would, um, would exercise uh, once the church age began. So one of the things, reasons that people do not get their prayers answered is because they wrongly apply Scripture. They take it out of context and assume that, that, that this means one thing and that God ought to perform in a certain manner instead of another manner. The fourth reason is a lack of forgiveness towards other believers. A lack of forgiveness. That we all want other people to treat us in grace when we fail, but we do not always treat other people, other believers in grace when they fail, especially when the sins that they commit are, are, are we consider to be very heinous sins. The passage for this is in Mark 11, verses 22 through 26. Jesus is instructing His disciples. And in verse 22 it says, And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. That's simply a passage talking about the power of faith. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. See, if you're not forgiving other believers that have offended you, then the mental attitude sin that's dominating you is bitterness and anger and vindictiveness. And that's a sin that you need to confess and move on from. So you're still maintaining an attitude of carnality if you have not if you're holding something against another believer at the same time you're trying to pray. So you have to forgive those who have offended you and if you have anything against them so that your father also who is in heaven 
may forgive you your transgressions. If you're sitting there saying, going through the process of confession and naming off certain of your sins to God and admitting them, but at the same time, there's a sin that's that, that, a foundational sin that is still continuing. You may get into fellowship for a microsecond, but that's as long as it's going to last because your bitterness and your anger continues through that whole process. So we have to forgive others just as God forgives us. In verse 26, which is not in the oldest of manuscripts, but is in a number of manuscripts, and we can deal with that textual problem in a different way. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. And that is just an implication drawn out from the previous sentence, who is in he- that the Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. So the fourth reason that we do not get our prayers heard is a lack of forgiveness for others. Point number five is a lack of marital tranquility. I know the wives always perk up when they get to this particular passage. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, which is directed to the husbands. Lack of marital tranquility. Likewise, you husbands, live with your wives on the basis of knowledge as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and show her respect as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. The husband that does not live with his wife in this understanding manner, showing grace orientation, impersonal love, forgiveness, etc., and, ha- and exercises a-, a certain amount of hostility within the home, wherever there's marital breakdown within the home, what's going on, a number of mental attitude sins, there's bitterness, there's anger, there's resentment, there's uh, anxiety, all of these mental attitude sins will be going on if this is not being applied. And the result of that is the prayers just won't be answered because of this. I want you to note that when there is a domestic problem in this passage, the husband is not being commanded to love the wife, as is stated elsewhere in Scripture, but he is commanded to live with his wife on the basis of knowledge, on the basis of pertinent doctrine. So husbands have to grow a certain amount in doctrine and exercise their godly responsibilities as a husband in the marriage if their prayers are going to be answered. If they're failing spiritually in terms of their relationship to their wives within the home, then they will be failing spiritually in their prayer life. Now, one of the interesting things that I always point out when I talk about the relationship of prayer to marriage is that the only, pass, the only excuse in the Bible that's given for abstaining from sex in marriage is prayer. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Scripture says, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again, lest Satan tempt you, because of your lack of self-control. So Scripture realizes the nature of the sex drive among men and women, and when that's not fulfilled, the, the uh, reason, it, the way it opens people up to temptation for marital infidelity. So headaches are not an excuse, according to the Bible, for not having sex, or being too busy at work, or coming home tired, or whatever this may be. Scriptures make it clear that there's only one legitimate reason for abstaining from sexual activity in marriage, and that's prayer. So maybe that'll stimulate a lot of people to an excessive prayer life. I don't know. A sixth reason for why uh, prayers are not answered is because of our pride, our arrogance, or our self-righteousness. This is Job 35, 12, and 13. Five was a problem of domestic tranquility. When you don't have tranquility in the home, prayer life will suffer. 
And number six is pride or self-righteousness. And that's Job 35, 12, and 13. There we read, There they cry out, but he, that is God, does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty regard it. When we are characterized by an attitude of arrogance or self-righteousness, this is carnality. You know, often when we think of sin, we think of those overt sins that we may find detestable, murder, rape, uh, adultery, infidelity, lying, things of that nature. But the worst sins are the sins that are mental attitude sins, that are emotional sins, sins that are often hidden and private. And pride and arrogance underlies all of those sins. So whenever we have a mental attitude that is characterized by arrogance, then we're out of fellowship, we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, and God will not regard our prayers. So, pride and self-righteousness keeps God from hearing our prayers. Seventh, a failure to comply with divine will. I'll just put up here, not God's will. When our prayers do not conform to the will of God. This is in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Now, the problem here is that often we do not know God's specific will in a situation. Sometimes God does not have a specific will for us in a particular situation. Uh, for example, if you're a college-age student and you're trying to decide what God's will is for your life, whether you should go to um, one university or another university, or whether you should live at home or live in the dorm, it may not be God's specific will for you to go to uh, University X or University Y. God is more concerned about how you make your decision that ultimately you want to glorify God, you want to pick the school that's going to give you the best education, where you will get the uh, best education for your money, your responsible use of money, where you can, uh, if you're going to go uh, away from home and away from the, your local church, where you can find a local church where you're going to learn doctrine and be able to fellowship with other believers. Uh, all of these are factors that enter in. God's more concerned with how you make the decision than with what that ultimate decision is. And sometimes God does have a specific plan. For example, if God wants you to go to um, uh, Harvard instead of uh, UConn, then God will provide everything necessary to make it there to, at Harvard and provide all of the funds, provide the scholarship or whatever. And if you think that, oh, it's just impossible and I don't know how we're going to work out all of these logistics and I don't know where all the money is going to come from, I'm just going to take the path of least resistance and go to uh, UConn, then God will do something. Some way, if you are willing to do whatever God wants and that's your attitude, then God somehow through circumstances or other ways if God really specifically wants you at a, at a particular geographical location and you're willing, God will get you there. Even if you're not willing, as in the case of Jonah, God had a specific geographical will for Jonah. God does not always have a specific geographical will for us. When He does, if we're willing, God will get us there. If we're not willing, the way God gets us there will be more painful than if, we're, um, than if we are willing to submit to His leadership. So we, um, we don't need to try to get out our, our uh, crystal ball and try to figure out God's will, which is what happens with so many believers. They get wrapped around the axle trying to comply with God's will. The Scripture is very clear that there are a number of things that are God's will. One of the things that we saw last night, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You can make a list of the passages in Scripture that specifically state what God's will is for the believer. It's God's will for you to pray. 
It's God's will for you to be, to be grateful, to have thanksgiving for all things in your life. It's God's will for you to be attending uh, Bible class and learning doctrine. It's God's will for you to honor your father and your mother. All the mandates in Scripture are God's will for you. As long as you're trying to live within the framework of those mandates in your life, you're executing the will of God. And we, we begin to pray for specific situations in our lives. Often all we can do, as we saw the other day, is pray as Jesus did in the garden. Father, if it be thy will, this is what I would like. Present our petition in that way. Uh, even the Apostle Paul stated when he wrote uh, the uh, epistle to the Romans, he said, if it be God's will, then I will come to you. He had no idea whether it would be God's will or not. The promise in 1 John 5.14 is, and this is the confidence, the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. This is a powerful promise. If we ask according to God's will, He will respond. And sometimes we need to claim these promises to God in the midst of our prayers. As I pointed out in the episode in Acts 4, the prayer there, they went back and they quoted Scripture back to God. And this is an excellent tool as we are crafting our prayers to God is to find these promises and specifically claim these promises. Say, Father, you have promised me in this verse that if I pray for this, you will do this. And now I am claiming that promise. And I think we have a right to do that as believers. But... In the midst of that, we're not telling God what to do. We are coming to Him in submission, in humility, that if this is His will. If we fail to comply with the divine will, especially in the broad sense of violating the mandates of God for believers in the New Testament, our prayers certainly will not be answered. So, the seventh reason is when we pray when our prayers are not according to God's will. The eighth reason stated in Scripture is a lack of obedience. To God, First John three twenty two. Lack of obedience. We have asked, we receive from Him because we continue to execute His commands. We continue to obey Him, and we keep on doing what is pleasing in His sight. That's the thrust. As long as we're staying in fellowship and continuing to grow, then God hears our prayers. Therefore, from this we learn that prayer is related to our fulfillment of the plan of God in our lives and the way in which we execute the Christian life. When we do what is pleasing in His sight, that describes pursuing spiritual maturity and that means coming to Bible class, means learning doctrine, it means applying doctrine consistently in our lives so that we can grow. Whenever we face trials and tests, those are designed to accelerate our spiritual growth and we handle those tests by applying doctrine rather than by caving in. Uh, ninth reason that our prayers are not answered is sometimes we pray to the wrong person. You find Christians addressing prayers to the Father, and, I mean to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. So we address our prayers to the wrong person. Now, we'll look at this in a little more detail tonight. The Scripture authorizes prayer to God the Father uh, in the name of the Son by means of the Holy Spirit. And as we pray, we pray to God the Father. Jesus Christ is involved in an intercessory ministry with us. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us. What happens suddenly is you begin to pray to Jesus and then you need a, He's not our intercessor anymore. He's the one you're praying to. So now you need another intercessor. And historically, this is what's happened. If Jesus is no longer the intercessor because you're praying to Him, oh, who will intercede for us with Jesus? Ah, Mary will intercede with us 
with Jesus for us. So then Mary becomes the co-mediatrix, the co-redemptrix. And before long, Mary becomes so elevated that, that, well, we can't really pray to Mary, so we have to have someone to intercede with Mary for us. So we'll start praying to the saints. And it sets up this whole thing where you're always looking for someone else to intercede and you get this stair step and introduce all kinds of people into the process that have nothing to do with prayer whatsoever. So we don't want to pray to the wrong person. We address our prayers to God the Father. Tenth reason our prayers fail is the wrong motivation. We have wrong motives. In James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, James says you lust. And do not have. Lust is the primary motivation of the sin sin nature. There's all types of lust. There's approbation lust. There's materialism lust. There's uh, power lust. There's sex lust. There's drug lust. There's computer lust for some of us. Um, We have all types of different lusts. There's there's food lust. um, All kinds of things. You lust and do not have. So you commit murder. Also you are jealous. Mental attitude sins. And cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So they weren't even involved in prayer. You don't have because you don't ask. And then they, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So they had two problems. One, they just some didn't pray and others who did, but they asked with wrong motives so they could spend whatever it was they were asking for on their own pleasures. So when you're motivated by the lust of your sin nature, where are you once again? You're out of fellowship and carnality and God will not answer your prayers. So jealousy, anger, revenge, all of these, materialism, lust, all of these are wrong motives for prayer. James brings up another point that is related to one we've seen already, lack of humility. This is another reason. Humility is a recognition of the authority of God in prayer. You're not commanding God. You're not trying to manipulate God. In James 4, 1 through 5, and then Job 35, 12 through 13. So James... 4, 1 through 5 addresses this, part of which we've just read, in Job 35, 12, and 13. They cry out, but God does not answer because of the arrogance of evil men. So lack of humility. Twelfth reason that there is no, um, uh, that our prayers are not answered is we attempt to manipulate God. We use our prayers as a means to uh, manipulate. We try to either manipulate God and bargain with God, or we try to to get God to manipulate the volition of other people. We cannot pray that God would violate the volition of other people. God will never do that. So we have to craft our prayers in a way that avoids trying to get God to manipulate the prayer, manipulate other people. Often we do this when people say, Lord, I want you to just make so-and-so do this, or I want you to save so-and-so. Well, God's not going to violate their volition. We can pray that the gospel would be made clear to them, We pray that God would put them in a situation where they would be more likely to be responsive to the gospel, but we can't pray for their specific salvation because that ultimately is determined by their own volition. So when we pray to manipulate God or the volition of others, then we will not get our prayers answered. Thirteen, rejection of doctrine. If we reject doctrine, then we enslave ourselves to carnality. For whatever reason, when we reject doctrine, we'll forget uh, the mechanics of prayer will forget what the uh, what the mandates are for prayer and all of these other things that we have talked about will enter into our prayer life. So once we reject doctrine, we will go into carnality once again and our prayers will not be heard. Um, Fourteen, 
14 relates to what happens in a nation when they are under the discipline of God for their carnality. When the uh, client nation is under the cycles of discipline, then prayers for deliverance cannot be answered because God has already determined in His justice to discipline and remove that nation. In Lamentations 3.44, you have covered yourself, God is speaking to Israel, and He says, you have covered yourself with a cloud, that is, negative volition, rejection of God, so that no prayer can get through. You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. At a certain point in time, judgment becomes irreversible and prayers will not be heard. Fifteen, imprecatory prayers. These are prayers that are praying for something wicked to happen to your enemy. And there are several imprecatory prayers in the Psalms when God, when uh, David prays to God to uh, bring judgment upon unbelievers or others. And that was uh, legal and valid for that dispensation, but we do not have examples of that in the New Testament for the church-age believer. So imprecatory prayers are not answered. When you want God to execute vengeance on somebody and you're praying for that, another principle that applies is one we've seen already, and that is false motivation. So imprecatory prayers are not legal or valid for this dispensation. And the sixteenth reason that that, uh, prayers fail is that we fail to concentrate. I think we've all had the experience where we start praying to God and next thing we knew we were thinking about uh, some problem in our life or we were thinking about what we were going to do tomorrow and all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute, you know, I've got to get back to what I was praying about. Prayer involves concentration and we fail to concentrate. We go before the throne of grace and we forget why we're there. The next thing you know, we just, we have to start all over again. The concentration is very, very important to develop in the spiritual life. And a 17th reason, the last reason why, why prayers are not answered is because we fail to persist. Scripture talks about we not giving up in prayer. Jesus, in Luke 18, instructed the disciples and, and gave them a parable so that they would not lose heart in prayer. So those are the 17 reasons. Many of them relate to carnality. They relate to lust patterns. They relate to arrogance in the soul. They relate to failure to know doctrine, failure to properly claim promises, misunderstanding promises. All of these are reasons why our prayers fail. And to have successful prayers, what must we do? We need to be in fellowship. We need to to know doctrine. We need to be uh, praying according to the doctrine we know. We need to be rightly understanding the promises that we're claiming. And we need to be asking according to God's will in many things. Appealing to His grace, but asking according to God's will because we may not know or understand God's particular will in a specific matter. So that covers the 17 reasons why the believer's prayers are not heard. And then tonight... We're going to look at exactly what we should be praying for when we go to the Lord in terms of intercession for others and petition for ourselves. So let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank You for what we've studied and learned this morning for the vast array of doctrine that You have communicated to us and all these various principles related to prayer. And I pray the Holy Spirit would remind us of these things and challenge us that we might be a people known for our prayer lives, that this might be a church known for their prayer lives because they get their prayers answered. And Father, we know that we should have these two priorities in our lives, the priority of learning doctrine and the priority of communicating to you in prayer. And may this characterize this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.